Ruben, what are you drinking? Well, Judy, that's a fantastic question. I am drinking uh, something called Woodford that I originally thought was rye whiskey, but it's just a very good bourbon. Mm. It's delicious. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, we'll see how that how that works out. Not many people come on the show and drink like hard liquor. Cuz no. it it could be a long show, but especially with with several of us here, but that's cool. Um I'm I'm liking our I'm liking our chances. <laughs> um And Chris, what are you drinking? I am drinking a wonderful, delicious aged Earl Grey tea. Oh, wow. No, I'm just that kidding. was unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking retarded. Um, because I knew that I would be having this conversation with Ruben, um, I have this special bottle of Johnny Walker Blue nice. that I've never opened. So I'm actually opening it as we speak. I can't tell if this thing is metal. This little piece is metal or plastic. I'm hoping it's metal. But, uh, so that's what I'm drinking. Johnny Walker Blue. I have two guests. Brian is not here. They're both drinking hard liquor, and they are fucking Ruben Tosman and Chris Rockwell, folks. Um, my, I'm not going to lie. My face is just in my hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> Brian set this all up. He said that his internet is not working. He's actually hanging with Julie Dirksen, who's in town for a conference. Um, and so basically he bailed on us. Um, no, actually we were, we were thinking about having the conversation with like all five of us and we would have, if his internet weren't, um, collapsing at his house due to the gerbils not being fed in a while. And so, um, or something. Yeah, what's up with that? You live in no, Texas, right? I have no idea, but all I know is that if Texas wants to succeed, to, to, to secede, they better get the internet problem fixed. Maybe they're going to ah. secede the internet. <laughs> that could be. Is it possible, like really possible, that the internet for him is down? Because I saw him posting shit, and so I'm not convinced that, that he's having internet problems as much as he's just intimidated. I'm going to blame Jerry Jones. <laughs> Jerry, good one. Well, I mean, he could be doing all of that from his mobile phone. But for that matter, I'd just like to point out that we don't really all have to be on Skype for this call. We could all be recording individually and be on our phones or something like that. I'm just saying, Brian. But it gets complicated. <coughs> so um, I didn't say that, Brian. Um, no, Ruben said that. <coughs> and I second it. We'll so... Um, so folks, my guests tonight are, um, Chris Rockwell and Ruben Tosman. Chris, why don't you do the honors and introduce yourself a bit? Um, I'm, uh, I'm Chris Rockwell. I, uh, work for a company called Hybrid Learning Systems. I'm also the CEO of said company. Um, Hybrid Learning Systems specializes in unique learning experiences, um, preferably that have some form of game element involved. We also have a subsidiary called Impact Games. Um, Impact Games is best known for uh, a game called Peacemaker. Um, it is a game that is about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, 
and uh, we're very proud of that. Very proud that that's uh, part of our catalog. It's a, it's a, a quite a fascinating game. Um, more recently, we've been working with Rand McNally and the USA Today, and we've released a game online called Play the Election, which is at uh, www.playtheelection.com, and will be um, until the election is over. Um, Play the Election is built on a platform that we have called Play the News, which allows, um, in this case, uh, schools to build uh, very short-form casual games uh, based around news events, and the games are opinion prediction games. Um, the entire package is available to schools throughout the U.S. Uh, at zero cost, so teachers can sign up and invite their students to join into the uh, into classrooms, if you will. Uh, we're very excited about it. Um, I know the game has just been accepted into the DevLearn Demo Fest uh, event that's coming up, and um, we have also submitted it to a couple other places that uh, we're hoping to hear back from soon. Uh, we're incredibly proud of it. Um, uh, a lot of the stuff that we've been trying to focus on lately, um, the stuff that interests me is more physical computing and using sensors, um, board games, card games. Um, I, I, I really love the physical interaction. Haptics? Uh, um, no. No? Um, board, haptics? No, we're not. No, saying... I'm, I'm asking haptics as well, not are those haptics. No, no. no. Um, actually, I did, I did a really interesting study with haptics. Um, mm. God, it was a number of years ago um, in uh, doing very simple aviation-based simulations um, with haptics. Um, and that was something that we, we looked into. Unfortunately, at the time, the, the hardware cost was way beyond what we were looking at, but we did take a really hard look at it because we thought it was a, a pretty interesting tool. Um, but no, more just basic um, sensors around either um, that can be worn, things like the Nike Fuel Band, uh, as an example, or sensors around the house, or, or, or any way that we can implement that into the gameplay. We, we had a, a great game pitch that we put together called um, Contagious. You can actually read about it on the Impact Games website. And it, it was a really cool um, game that we were going to build that used sensors that people wore to replicate the spread of a virus. Um, in this case, the pitch that we had made... Um, got pretty far and we had a major league baseball team that was willing to let us do it at one of their games, um, which would have been about a 40,000 user base. So it would have been a really large scale game. And, uh, we were kind of excited about that, but alas, uh, the people that were interested in the process, uh, took too long to get back to us. And so we actually couldn't do it because we ran out of time to, to have all the sensors built, but we, we actually do still have the design. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing I think is pretty fascinating, pretty interesting piece. And really the data visualization that you can get back from that um, is, is pretty, pretty phenomenal. So I happen to think that that kind of stuff is really, um, really what's interesting and really, really some of the future of learning. I mean, we, we can even see more of that occurring just by some of the work that's being done right now with some of the new specs like Tin Can, which can really... Um, really access that stuff or it's not tin can i'm sorry i believe it's called the experience api or something silly so um, um that's all the time we have folks thank you ruben and chris <laughs> for being here i'm sorry um two hours we are 
more minutes to talk. We are rude hosts. Um, Ruben, wake up. It's your turn. I'm, done. I'm sorry. Were you done? You are. Okay. I'm, I'm just kidding. That was, that was very cool. <laughs> Chris, you are, you are like one of my idols because you're always doing really cool shit. Thank you. Thank you uh, for being here. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. I, the, the funny part is I have to do this like night talk at DevLearn and somehow they think in six minutes, I'm going to say anything meaningful. Um, I, it's hard for me to do that. I yeah. can't talk six minutes. I, yeah, I need like I'm 60 to do that too. We'll yeah. See. What are we going to do? Um, Sorry. Weren't you going to do something involving pig's blood? Yeah. I, yeah. Pig's blood dry. I, I think that's been turned down, but I'm not sure. So we'll, we'll see. have to wait for the guild to get back with us on that. Um, Ruben. Yes. Ruben Tosman. How about you? Uh, give us a, give people who don't know you or know of you um, the, the lowdown, the skinny. I'm a Montreal Jew. That pretty much takes care uh, of it, folks. Awkward. Um, Ruben Tosman uh, started Etc. Training, which is my own company, 10 years ago. Um, it was a one-man show for about two months and uh, somehow never intended it to ever really uh, be anything other than a one-man show, but um, 10 years later, it's a pretty interesting little space. Uh, we do a lot of the boring, ordinary stuff that, uh, you know, people are used to custom design development of digital shit. Uh, but more importantly, I think that a big part of the company is an R and D arm, which we get. Uh, government funding for and uh, we just get to play with a bunch of ideas and executing on those ideas and uh, we've been a uh, we've been working with semantic web technologies since pretty much day one and uh, that's been our focus and we've built out design and development processes around using intelligent content and how that helps that whole process uh, I'm really, really into machine learning these days uh, and trying to figure out uh, how to make that happen so that people can use machines better. Yeah. And if Chris, if Chris wants to give me a job, man, I'd work for Chris's company any day. He makes coffee with science. You make coffee with science. It doesn't matter, man. I'd work with Chris any day. If you must give me a job. Um, Ruben, tell the people like the big thing about you that you should be telling people about right now around this. <laughs> right. I'm, wow, I'm like that's, the, <laughs> Wow, that's I'm, very subtle, Judy. I'm, I'm David Letterman in this scenario. Sure. You're like promoting your book. You're on my couch and you're not even mentioning the book, but that's cool. Um, I, I, oh, oh. So book just came, book is, uh, I wrote a book. It uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago, available for pre-order. It's called Learning on Demand. Uh, and really what it is, is it's an exploration of uh, web technology, starting from the beginning, looking at what has made the web the web, 
uh, where it sits today and what are the technologies that are fueling its, uh, I'm going to say, co-evolution with humanity and how people in our space, that being learning and development, can leverage that technology, what that means for design, uh, what that means for how we develop stuff, uh, and how to model content so that an intelligent web can actually make use of it. So, Ruben, you're also another one of my idols because you're always doing really deep stuff. Um, so that's actually I read the f- or I read the first chapter of the book today because I'm not cool enough to have a whole book all myself. But uh, you're opening up some serious stuff there. There's a lot there. If you guys, if the listeners at home couldn't tell by Ruben's introduction um, and by all of the Twitter chat around it lately and who's, who's praising it and, and calling it thought-provoking and stuff like that, um, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, I hope so. It, you know, I don't, I'm not sure the first chapter would, would have been the chapter that I made available. Um, that was ASTD's choice. And that chapter, interestingly enough, that's uh, my big problem in writing the book uh, was how do I make it as uh, relevant to the community as I, as I possibly can. Uh, and Kemi Bean was totally uh, invaluable to me. She was phenomenal. Uh, and she, and so there's this big push to get an introductory chapter out that connected people to the, to the topic. It's not my favorite chapter, but, uh, if anyone got a sense, if you got a sense that this might be interesting, then great. But, uh, well, I mean, I think that from being familiar with your work and your interests, I can tell some of the areas that you're going to go into. Um, I think that if, you know, again, not that not that it will be an inaccessible book, but I think that if you were to just put a chapter out there of that meat, um, yep. that might well scare people. Not I hear you. So you know, but but I think that the first chapter is, is accessible and and it's certainly thought provoking and um, hopefully will encourage people to buy it and read it because there's uh, I think there's some really good stuff there. Um, even even the Thank first you. chapter, I think, very pro- thought provoking, and cool. and props to Cami. Um, oh my god, yeah. I'm just gonna leave that there. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so um, you guys, I know, are are in pretty constant conversations about stuff. Um, what do you think? What do you think some of the interesting things are that you talk about that you would want uh, other people to be involved in the conversation? We uh, we want to open a motorcycle repair and coffee shop. That's really what the bulk of our conversations are about. Nice. It's true. <laughs> I know that you guys both both write. Wait, I know that Ruben does. We talk about hockey too. Okay. Well, I mean, it's fair. You're Chris. You're in Pittsburgh, and Ruben, you're in Canada. So you. Yeah. Soft. He's soft. <laughs> we do. If you know what, Chris is absolutely right. I mean, that's the bulk of our conversations have to deal with some of the uh, shittiness that goes on in running a business like ours, and that the alternative 
just seems way better. Uh, what do you mean the alternative? The coffee shop motorcycle oh, repair sure. shop yeah. as an alternative to running uh, a company that tries to be innovative in a space that doesn't seem to want to go there. Uh, so the alternative always seems better to us. So we do talk about that. Uh, and I'm going to say, I mean, we, uh, I think we let off a lot of steam with each other. I think the, you know, when something stupid happens to us, I know when something stupid happens to me, Chris is the guy I go to to say, fuck, something stupid just really happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. I, I mean, you know, Ruben and I both having started our own companies, um, I think we identify with each other a lot and, and really tend to bitch to each other a lot about really stupid shit and, um, the, you know, that we have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, you know, I also think, um, you, you know, he and I do share a, a fairly common view and I think he just hit on it. And that's, that's kind of the lack of innovation that we're seeing. Um, you know, we, we did a, a joint blog post, um, geez, that was a couple of months ago, huh, Ruben? Yeah, it seems like it was just yesterday, but it was a couple of months ago about um, some of the lack of innovation in e-learning and, and really what we need to do about it. You know, I, I mean, from my perspective, and I think Ruben agrees that you know we, we are getting to this point where you know when I when I started, and it's a point that I made in the blog post when I started my e-learning journey, as as we'll call it, um, way back when I was young. Um, you know, we were using tools like Authorware. Um, to do some really innovative stuff. And I mean, we had full-blown simulations embedded within uh, courseware that was really, I mean, at the time it was state-of-the-art and it, it still is. And, and I think that's the sad part because that's stuff that we were doing in, in 1998. And, you know, it, it seems to me that we started doing that because we were trying to find a good replacement, of, a valid replacement for videos. Um, you know, I, e-learning at the time was 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 a great replacement because it kept people engaged and so forth and so on and now it seems like so much of the e-learning um is point and click you know like fancy powerpoint presentations and not that fancy yeah and not that fancy so frankly we've gone from from this this amazing stuff that um had a lot of simulation to to content that's actually less engaging than video mm-hmm. and I think that that's a little I think that that's something that should trouble anybody that's really doing it also that should trouble people um, just because the debate is on and I see it here in the background is why do people insist on taking iPads and using them as cameras it's just weird I don't get it <laughs> I saw a lot of that in the opening ceremonies and like the the Olympics and I really don't. Yeah, no. It's, it's strange. That's it's all. Odd. Just you know, you spent all this money to go there. Just get yourself a little iPod Touch or whatever. A camera. Isn't or it? that. Yeah. yeah, there's a camera. It's yeah. Um. So that was actually the point that I was going to come back to from from what Ruben was saying too. That uh, you guys have a lot of frustration about uh, our industry, our community, our field, whatever you want to call it. Um. Not being very innovative and um, being stuck in its ways and sometimes just being out and out stupid or whatever you want to say. And I want to, I want to take that, I want to take that point and, and I want to turn it to, to what do we do? What are you guys doing? I, I, well, um, I, I think 
you know, one is you have to look at the fact that everything around us that and the us here being the industry um, it has managed to take advantage of this, you know, of Moore's law of, of the price of, you know, technology and all that getting cheaper and cheaper and innovation getting higher and higher and, uh, and look at that and look what we've done with kind of what we have access to. And essentially, if you go back and, and it's interesting, I make this point and I'll, and I'll come back to your question, Judy. So uh, I, I make this point uh, in helping to promote the book. I'm doing ASTD's blog this month. Uh, and I make the point that the initial vision for how computers were going to be used in education was to essentially take the classroom and facilitate some of the classroom part of it. So electronic tutoring um, and exactly kind of figuring out ways in which we can use computers to replicate classroom experience. We haven't budged from that position. Like we haven't yet rethought of, okay, one is maybe that model's wrong to begin with. That's kind of an, a bigger education issue. But two, within our own industry that is so focused on technology that what we've done is, is every time kind of technology evolves in something, we take it and we bend it to build the same shit that we've been building since Web 1.0 or pre-Web 1.0, since Plato was, was first created, which was the first major kind of e-learning system. And we just keep fucking replicating this stupid paradigm, which is that it's this event. And so now, you know, the beginning of innovation is, hey, we can do that in HTML5 and isn't that cool and we can run it on an iPad. And the truth of the matter is, is that the innovation has nothing to do with the technology. The innovation is, is what Chris is doing, which is reimagining how it is that we can deliver content. And, and the accessibility of technology and the price point that it's at gives us this incredible opportunity to do that, which is to reimagine not necessarily how we're going to make a better event Right. Wow, we can stream video even quicker. Uh, so what we should do is really short bursts of video. Uh, instead, you know, the innovation has to happen around how we're thinking about about how people access content and and providing different experiences and better experiences for people. And and I think uh, in that you have to pick your battle. So. I'm a big fan of gaming. I'm a big fan of uh, experiential design and all that. Truth be told, not necessarily my forte. I leave that stuff up to Chris. Uh, you know, my forte is making content intelligent, and I focus in on that, and I innovate around that, and I figure out how that can be used to reimagine how we can deploy content via modern web technology that gives me all this fantastic opportunity. That to me is the innovation. It has nothing to do, the technology is, is, uh, is secondary uh, in the sense that that's what I use, but certainly um, re, you know, looking at the technology and, and how people are using it and how we've evolved with it certainly can help us reimagine how we need to redeploy 
training content. So you brought up a point, um, and everyone knows my, my ears sort of perk up when you say HTML5. I was listening anyway, yeah. but it's cool. Um, the, the, um, what was I going to say? I do find it frustrating that um, even as a person who is talking a lot about that particular technology, what people want to talk about is how how to use it to get stuff to play on an iPad, to recreate the same experience on an iPad. Um, whereas, the, and that is, that is part of, at least initially, that was an important thing to bring people's awareness to simply because the tool set that our field was so tied to was not doing anything with what was clearly going to be the only way to get stuff deployed on iPads and mobile devices. So part of it, part of I think our initial conversation was around that because our our tool vendors that we were so de dependent on were, were really going to leave us in the dust. But I think that we, at least I hope that we can evolve that conversation to um, the fact that using HTML5 or just straight up using HTML gives you so many more opportunities in terms of semantics, in terms of having text that's actually in there in the code that is machine readable, that's translatable, that's more accessible just by nature, etc. You know, so I think that think that there really is um, place for conversation around how certain technology, and in, in this case, I think web technology, really does have some advantages over what's been done in the past. Would you yeah, yeah look, look, if I, you know, the conversation around tin can these days, swap HTML5 for tin can, what are, what are the gross majority of people excited about that Articulate can now support tin can? Yes, that, tear that, my like, hair out. That Lectora can now support Tin Can. Who the fuck gives a shit? You're still building the same course, and that ultimately, just because you can read that a course is complete in Tin Can versus using, um, you know, you know, regular SCORM shit to do it, who cares? Right. No right. one's reimagined the experience of okay. Here's this great new capability. Uh, what does that experience look like? And and you know, one of the most uh, interesting presentations that I've seen, it was with Chris, was that woman, Chris, from uh, Smithsonian that, oh, yeah, showed, yeah. that showed that really cool mobile experience that was set up uh, and having people walk through a kind of set up experience and how they involve the community and how they involve people and conversations and objects. And I mean, that was... Fantastic. That's reimagining the experience using what's available through technology. Yeah. It, um, it, is there, Ruben, is there somewhere that we can link up to that? Or is there a video or something like that that would tell us more for the people? There is, there is Chris knows the, the actual software that she's. Well, it's not the software. That was actually an art exhibit that was done. Um, and it used um, audio. It used audio recordings, and, and the audio recordings were recordings of people voicing their experience where they were. And um, what's what's interesting about that is, well, there's a number of things that are interesting about that. But 
what that hits upon in, in what Ruben is alluding to that I think is important, um, you know, the, the, one of the biggest buzzwords, the biggest buzz terms that we've seen in e-learning in the past, I don't know, 10 years, is this concept of mobile learning. Um, sadly, more often than not, um, the concept of mobile learning is conveyed as the idea of taking existing courseware and putting it on these mobile phones, which, frankly, is the most asinine idea that I've ever heard of in e-learning. I'm drinking to that. Right now my silence is because I'm drinking, just it's so you just, know. It's, it's just dumb. I mean, I, I've, I've, <coughs> been in, uh, you know, I, I've been involved in the uh, AICC, the Aviation Industry CBT Committee, since 1998, I think it was. 98, 99, one of the two. Um, and the AICC um, are best known for a, a specification they had for um, um, computer-based training that was really the precursor and the foundation of what became SCORM. Um, and, you know, I, I spearheaded a lot of the mobile learning initiatives with the AICC and, and talk, trying to talk to people and get that going. And, I, I mean, I, I had a... I had one unnamed uh, training professional from an airline ask me why they couldn't, you know, his question was, like, he said that he wanted to get the lesson for his hydraulic system so he could see it on his iPhone. Well, you know, I've designed lessons for hydraulic systems for large airplanes, and I wouldn't want that on my iPhone. (laughs) I mean, it's too complicated. Complex. It's too big. It's you're really missing the point. And but but that's kind of the pervasive attitude. And you know what Ruben says, and and really what the, the example that he's pointing to, which I think makes so much sense, makes sense because it actually uses what these mobile phones have. I mean, you know, Ray Kurzweil described. Ray, Ray Kurzweil stated the mobile phone is misnamed. It should be called the gateway to all human knowledge. <laughs> that are constantly connected, that have GPS units in them, that have audio, that have video, that can do so many things. And what that boils down to is we're talking about, you know, the majority of the conversation is how do I get my current content onto these devices? And it's just crazy. Why would you, why wouldn't you want to have a piece that allows you to walk around and sit in front of, say, I don't know, the Capitol building in D.C. and get the history of the Capitol building right. in D.C. <laughs> right. you know, and understand that. No, I, I, I will confirm that, you know, because I've done a lot of writing on HTML5 that um, whenever I write for other people and they'll remain unnamed and organizations, um, they want to talk about M-learning. They want to stick M-learning in there and or they want to put for mobile and you know, I think that HTML5 has significant advantages over Flash for desktop, for laptop. You know, it, it's not it's it's not about just getting your stuff on an iPhone. But, but I think we need to go beyond HTML5, and, and I think that that is part of part of the problem that we're running into right now in the community is that I don't think that you know you know H, HTML5. Um, and I don't. That, that's not even the right technology. It's not the right terminology because it's way beyond HTML5. You know, I mean, we're talking about 
script libraries, and we're talking about uh, all these different components that that boiled down to you know actually having to to do what was done when we started the e-learning, and that's you know sit down and write code. Yeah. Well, right. let me since you know we're fear of code. Yeah, since I'm talking to you and Ruben, I, I, I will say I'll just call it web technology rather than, you know, and code um, rather than plug-in technology and especially rather than like rapid tools that output to plug-in technology. Anyway, I just, it, I know it's not a, not just about HTML5. I don't want to, I don't want to start the, the conversation in that way, but. Um, Can I just make to, a point here? To, to, yeah, go ahead. So the 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 big idea is the fact is is you you can no longer separate the evolution of technology with our own evolution that we there is a parallel evolution going on and if you don't think that's true then you then then you probably deny that people actually use the expression hashtag fail outside right. of Twitter. Right. The fact is, is people use that in normal conversation now. And so it's kind of like a matrix, of, matrix effect now where the characters in the matrix are coming into our reality and we're going into their reality. And there is this parallel evolution and, and it's, a, it's an infinite loop and we're feeding each other. The fact, the, the fact is, is we need to reimagine. So if the phones are the gateway, and I love that expression, the gateway to all, to all knowledge, if the phones are now our gateway and plug into this kind of co-evolutionary thing that's going on, what we need to do is figure out how we can become part of that co-evolution instead of trying to slap something on top of it. In other words, we have to become part of what is going on. We have to be, be part of the apps. We have to be part of what people are doing naturally anyways for every other aspect of their lives. They're doing their banking. They're doing their socializing. They're doing their family planning. They're doing their budgets. They're doing everything that they absolutely can all within this device. And what we tend to do is say, hey, great, let's, let's add on to that. When in fact, what we ought to be doing is figuring out how do we make this an absolutely fluid experience for people right. Right. Um, and then account for things like risk and account for things like, well, should I don't want my pilot just to, you know, have this on demand experience. No, they have to go through, uh, you know, a formal training. They have to spend time in the simulator. They still have to do that stuff because I know I want my pilots to do, to do that. But but that's going to be part of the natural flow anyways of their progress towards being a pilot. I mean, let's stop trying to figure out why these things are separate events in planet and instead work on the environment that's going to feed, you know, that that's already kind of trending and evolving and people are figuring out how to make the web more transparent to us so that we're not going to the web, but that we're part of the web. And we keep running in this the same direction of like, ah, oh, great, HTML5. Let's use HTML5 to create a course. Ah, oh, great, Tin Can. We can use Tin Can now to do the exact same thing that we've done before. Yeah. Uh, it, which is why, like, I, I think, you know, the, you know, when when Chris is talking about using sensors and figuring that out. Um, you got to applaud that sort of thing because that's all working at a level where it's like, okay, how can we get things 
into what people are doing naturally? How are we going to embed environments into environments that it is in a way consistent with this co-evolutionary trend of technology and humans. And you and people have to stop kind of denying that there is now this very entangled uh, co-evolution. Like Ray Kurzweil wasn't a stupid guy. You know, there's something to what he says, whether you believe the singularity is all going to happen or not is irrelevant. Uh, as much as people deny whether the semantic web, as Tim Berners-Lee imagined it, is going to happen, it's already here. It may not be RDF and OWL, but it's here. Mm -hmm. So, What do you – because this is stuff that you're, you're working on already with your clients and that you're doing R&D on and everything like that. Um, I, I know that there are some learning professionals out there who are – um, or listeners who are listening and saying, yes, I totally agree with that. This is going to make me sound batshit crazy if I try to do this stuff at work. You know, how, how do they do that? Do they, are there baby steps, you know, the things like that, you know, how are you selling this? Uh, or, or just what are you, or is it just, it's not something you sell, but just a perspective to what you do. Okay, so I'm going to be totally honest about this, and, and I think people are going to hate me, um, but that's okay. I think those people that, that cry that, that line were saying like, yeah, I love the idea, but I can't do it, are people that just don't do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just seems to me that... Uh, you know, and, and Chris knows about it. I mean, we're doing uh, an amazing project with a financial company um, where, you know, everyone talks about, no, I can't do that. It's a financial company, compliance, blah, 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 blah. And we are building, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most, um, one of the most enjoyable projects for my company, uh, building out for them something that is so unfinancial and so uncompliance driven and purely for the learners and at the level where most people are saying, oh, I could never do that. And it's just a matter of being able to say, this is what we're going to do. But you got to be able to think of the ideas and you got to be able to implement them and you got to be able to understand um, that when an executive VP says, mm, I don't know, that you got to be able to say, okay, well, here's the alternatives and, you know, what do you want to do sort of thing? But, I mean, those people that had a very interesting conversation online, and sorry, I don't mean to dominate this conversation, but someone was telling me in the same sentence that, um, you know, woe is me, training people don't have any power, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and in the same paragraph, he told me, that um, it was other people's job in the business to determine whether an intervention was going to be valuable to the business. And it was his job to execute. And so that it's not his job to determine whether or not training salespeople on whatever is going to be valuable to the business. Someone else determined that. It's his job to execute. But woe is me, I've got no power. And I was yeah. like, you gotta, you know, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I no, I, I I really love that response. Uh, I, look, I don't think uh, a business like uh, like Chris's survives if every single company out there isn't doing this. 
Do you know what I mean? Someone's got to be doing it. And so someone's thinking it. No one gave Chris permission to do what he wanted to do. No one's given me permission to do what we wanted to do. It's just, that's what you do. Is this one of these awkward silences that you were talking about, Judy? No, I'm, I'm giving Chris an opportunity to respond. Um, you know, I, I think Ruben said a, a couple of things that, that really resonated and that are very interesting. Um, you know, one, and I want to I touch on this because I, I think this is important. You know, we talk about the Tin Can API, and Ruben's right. You know, I mean, this thing's getting a, a whole lot of buzz, and uh, I, I'm – I'm really excited about it for a number of reasons. Um, what troubles me is the fact, as Ruben pointed out, that so many people look at it and they say, oh, yeah, tin can API, tin pan, you know, okay, cool. So now we can contract completion this way. Um, and that's troubling because the tin can API is really a, a start of something that's so much bigger than that, that, that relates to things that are, beyond what normal coursework is. I mean, you know, the current the current incarnation of Tin Can really allows for some really interesting informal learning tracking, which I think is a, is a big deal. Um, but what's more interesting to me, and, and, you know, this is coming from an aviation background, and, you know, frankly, when, when people start talking to me about regulations and training and, and this and that and, and the strictness of, of record-keeping and such... Um, you know, spend an hour in the aviation industry and, and understand what true regulations and training are, because you know, at least in the U.S. and in Europe, with with the FAA and with the uh, JARops uh, regulations in Europe, I mean, this is not a small thing. I mean, this is huge. And when we look at something like Tin Can, you know, to me, what what I see is an opportunity to do something that SCORM, uh, that, that HackP from the AICC couldn't really do that well. And that's to track some actions that go way beyond that of computer-based training. In theory, the way that the Tin Can API works and the way that it's written, um, and, and you know, I, I will be able to elaborate on this a, a lot more um, after, at DevLearn and after DevLearn, um, in theory, the Tin Can API could be used to track something as complex as a full motion flight simulator. And the full motion flight simulator in the aviation world has been around for a long time. It's what pilots train on consistently. Um, in most U.S. airlines, and, and I'm sure in your European airlines as well, um, but I, I'm more familiar with the U.S. regs than I am with the, the European regs, um, in most U.S. airlines, the first time a pilot flies passengers uh, on a plane he's just gotten a, a type rating on, so if he becomes, say, a captain of a 737, the first time he flies passengers in that 737 is the first time he's flying an actual 737. Um, most of that stuff has come from simulator time. And it's really fascinating to me that the Tin Can API has the ability to allow us to track every single button that that pilot touches, every single metric from airspeed to altitude to pitch roll, every single thing that occurs in that simulator. Now, that's a, that's a hell of a lot of data. I mean, that's a huge amount of data. But 
can gives you the ability or will give you the ability to actually track all of that data. Um, that's fascinating to me, uh, you know, because that, that you know, in my mind, there's a very fine line between uh, games and, and simulations. And really what we can do is apply that same methodology to games. And we get some pretty interesting, me- you know, metrics that we can track and follow. Um, and, and I think that that is a huge opportunity because really, you know, one of my big issues with, with e-learning and where it's become is we're, we're talking about people that are staring at a screen. I mean, go into like a, your typical e-learning classroom and, and what is it? It's, I don't know, 12, 16, how many people staring at a screen? Well, that doesn't fly too well, no pun intended, in the aviation world. Because in the aviation world, one of the biggest things that you have to concentrate on when you're on the flight deck is uh, uh, crew communication. You know, And uh, you can't do that if one person is staring at a screen. You have to have the communications. You have to have the interaction. And I think that we're starting to, to lose that. So, Ruben, you were going to say something. <laughs> I was, I was going to say that the, you know, the conversation about HTML5 is, is that when, when our industry was consumed with HTML5, because we've backed away a little bit, um, but when we were really consumed with it, we'd see the same sorts of things going on, which is this, um, you know, I, I'm going to say a pool of misinformation around what it is, why it's important, that, that, um, that comes from supposed experts in the, in the industry um, and what happens is that, um, you know, people get stupid like they, and again, I mean, we have this thing about how we we're trying to recreate the same paradigm, just using new technologies. And you combine that with a, a really poor understanding of, uh, of why you would use HTML5, um, you know, what you can do with it, you know, what type of environment support it. Uh, and, and so it's just to say that that whole thing with HTML5 and, and the discussions that we had about it, and, and there were, it, it was interesting. I mean, you and I used to talk about it. And, and at the time, uh, you know, it's much better now because there, there is, um, I think there is better support for it and that um, we've made some headway in terms of understanding uh, what environments support it. Um, but I, I, I brought up jQuery, which at the time you didn't necessarily know about, uh, which was a great kind of cross-platform thing. And, and that's not a commentary uh, on you because you put out some great information about HTML5 that I learned from. So it's, it's not a, a slant on you. It's just to say that we saw the same trend, which is this bunch of stupid shit comes out people reimagine things in the most horrible of ways. Uh, and then we just see crap being replicated in HTML5. I, I want to say that I think that a lot of the stupidity and a lot of the buzz was people freaking out. You know, they didn't know what the 
you know, they, they thought that they had this really good deal. They had Articulate Studio or, or Captivator or what like or whatever, you know, and they're like, oh my God, all of a sudden what is happening? Um, because, and maybe part of that was the, the very real realization that we don't have the capacity to deal with um, actual coding or maybe even actual design. Um, by the way, I don't know how you didn't, I don't know how you thought that I didn't know about jQuery, but at the time that we talked, but anyway, um, I think that the conversation was more around, yeah, that's, that's part of JavaScript. Like when we talk, when we talk about HTML5, um, at least when I do, and when a lot of, you know, people do, it, 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 uh, encompasses a whole lot of different web technology, which I just accept the imprecision because, I'm communicating with people who don't necessarily work on that kind of coding level. And I just work with that. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily say HTML5 and CSS3 and JavaScript and whatever. Um, but that's all generally part of it just to say, um, but yeah, I think that, that, that people got a little stupid and, you know, and, and now they're getting a little stupid about tin can next year's going to be something else. And, um, in general, I think that I think that we need to just be a little more professional about what we do, about the technology, about the cognitive science, about the design, you know, and and more serious about that and take ourselves more seriously as professionals. And I am totally getting drunk now um, so that that so that we don't get so rattled by those fads. And, and I'm not calling any of those things a fad. Those are all things that are important. But you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of the conversation that Chris and I have is, is when we say that we talk about stupidity, it's a lot about that. Mm. I don't mean, I don't mean to say, I mean, uh, this is going to go on a t-shirt. I don't mean stupid in a judgmental way. <laughs> Why? You should. I just am saying that <laughs> it's, I hear you and, um, I, I, I'm just saying that it just tends to freak people out. Can we talk about, sorry, I'm really interested, by the way, in Chris's latest project with the uh, Rand McNally thing, because you were the one that showed, that posted the uh, news release. And then I actually pinged Chris to call him an asshole to say, like, why the fuck am I hearing this from someone else? Why don't I know about this? <laughs> Chris doesn't self-promote very in a bad, you know, you don't do it in a bad way. No, I don't self-promote. I'm horrible at it from the world. I want to I know about that project. Um, all right, sure. So um, play the election. Do you, mind, do you mind, Judy, if we talk about that? Of course not. But, but can I say one thing first so that sure. we don't leave this thread? Um, I think that it's about being stupid in a bad way versus a good way or whatever. Um, Ultimately. Did you ever read the book Closing of the American Mind? No, I didn't. It's a fantastic book. Um, and, and the book the book basically is point is we gotta get away from the political correctness of saying your point of view is just as valid as mine. No, no, no. Mine I, is just as valid as yours. I because at the end of the day, people say stupid shit. Good people do bad things, smart people say stupid shit. It's it's not so bad to have done something stupid or whatever. But you got to call it stupid when it's stupid. You know what well, I mean? 
So, so I hear you. And by the way, that is why I say I hear you rather than I understand or I agree with you. Um, I hear you. Um, I think that you, that there's a certain degree to which you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And you, even you have said this, by the way, very recently on your blog, turning over a new leaf, um, which I didn't, I had a multitude of responses to none of which I posted. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think that there is an extent to which you, you know, don't want to turn people off. And, and for me, that's not about getting a client or getting a job, but about being able to um, have my ideas heard and push the field forward in any way I can. Fair enough. Well, I believe that uh, Ruben's new leaf was probably sucked up and shredded by a leaf blower. <laughs> <laughs> Your leaf has been blown. <laughs> Dude, I have, let me tell you something, even, uh, I, I am a reformed asshole. (laughs) I don't want to know. I'm reformed. I do believe in contributing something positive back, uh, back. And I've been focusing on that as opposed to calling out the negative. At the same time, I I think that we got to be realistic about where we've been so that we can get by it. And uh, move of on. Course. Of course. And I won't make any cynical comments about lots of people turning over new leaves when they release a book. I won't, <laughs> I won't make those comments. Dude, I, yeah. <laughs> Look. I, won't, I won't do it. I won't, you can't make me do it. Now, I would love to hear about Chris's new project. Me too. My new project. Okay, sure. I'll be happy to tell you about it. Um, Play the election um, is uh, the, the combination of some ideas that we've had for for quite some time. In fact, um, we reserved the domain name, geez, I think about a year and a half ago, two years ago almost, um, and it, it was all built around our Play the News platform. Um, so, Play the News is a platform that we acquired from Impact Games, and Play the News basically is a platform that allows people to build short-form games around news events. And, uh, you know, we're, we're really excited about it. Um, we spoke with Rand McNally some time ago, and Rand McNally expressed an interest in working with us because they were looking for a, a unique platform to do just such thing for high schools um, and schools around the U.S., um, and centered around the election. So we partnered with them. Uh, we reworked our entire platform and we basically presented it to them and published it. Um, the platform itself is available to teachers uh, and schools throughout the U.S. for free. Uh, there's no cost. There are, I think, six to eight mini games that we've created and published that will be put in. Uh, within the platform and released as time goes by. Um, I believe we've released four of them already. Um, Teachers can sign up their schools, and then students can uh, sign up under those teachers. Um, What's great about the the Play the News platform and Play the Election is that these are short-form, five-minute games. They are opinion prediction games. And uh, once you've completed the game, you can actually engage in conversation 
via, um, in this case, it's a moderated form because uh, it is uh, for schools. So we had to kind of appeal to a bunch of different levels and, and a bunch of different rules that we didn't have in the original platform. Um, the, the system itself is, is fairly unique in that it's a, a gamified, and I use that term sparingly, uh, version of the news. And uh, you know that you have levels and you have badges for how you perform, and uh, it's actually a really unique experience, and we're we're really excited about it. We are expecting upwards of twenty five thousand users um, by our rough calculations of about two weeks ago, when it's all said and done. Um, we retool it so that it runs on mobile devices, uh, which is a challenge because you know there's the misconception that. If you have something that runs in a standard web browser, you can just basically put that on a mobile device and it'll work, which just isn't true because mobile devices like iPhones um, and, and iPod Touches and Android phones all require a bit of a different touch interface, um, you know, as does the iPad. Uh, you know, that's a whole different paradigm of interaction, and you really have to do that when you're when you're building the system. So, you know, we did a a lot of retooling for that, <laughs> and um, you know we're, we're really excited about it. Um, it. It's a great system. You know we have been very fortunate and very lucky to to really get it up and running as quickly as we did. Um, we basically built the entire system um, platform, but you know, with the retooling and everything um, between May and August. So, you guys have done. Lots of large-scale projects like this, and um, or at least several that I know of that are, that are available publicly. Um, what kind of – I've always been interested, like, what kind of knowledge changes, behavior changes, performance changes, belief changes – do you expect and what kinds do you see and how do you get a beat on that? I, I, I'm going to use get a beat on instead of measure because. Yeah. Um, Cause. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I think peacemakers is a really good example. Um, you know, before we acquired impact games, peacemaker had been released. Um, they, you know, and I mean, it was a really interesting game because it, it, the, the purpose of the game was to show that games could be used for positive change. And, and that's, could, could, you, could, could we pause for a second? Who has a screeching cat? That's my bird. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he's, he's still awake. <laughs> he's, he'll meow shortly. Okay. But, never mind. Please continue. Small parrot, actually. Um. You know, Peacemakers is a really interesting game because it's really put out there in a non-violent manner, um, a way to to kind of solve the the conflict. You know, to to show people that it's not the conflict is far more complex and far deeper than what we normally think of. You know, and it's something that that really takes a lot of thought and, and a lot of expertise to go through. Um, and, you know, we've gotten some really amazing feedback and some amazing letters from people that you see change in. And, and that's something that I think is uh, almost intangible. You, you can't really, you can't quantify that. You know, you can't, 
explain that. It's something that that's really really powerful. Um, you know, some of the things that Jane McGonigal has said in her book um, "Reality Is Broken." Um, I don't agree with all of it, um, but I do agree with her. Um, you know, her 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 idea that games can't change the world. You know, I, I think we've got a, a huge base, as she points out of people that do things and we really want to work with that and, and leverage that. And, uh, I think it can be used very positively. And, uh, we, you know, we've certainly seen some interesting results with Peacemaker just from, from emails that we've gotten. And, you know, you look at games like Fold It and, uh, and other such games that, that I think really change the way that, that we can handle problems and solve problems. So it's really, it's really unique. Uh, an interesting experience to go through. Very cool. Do you feel like you're saving saving the world? And in, no. in, in just a little little come on, just a little bit? No. You know, I have no qualms about it. You know, we didn't Peacemaker was something we acquired. You know, and, and the guys that did that, they changed the world. You know, they changed the world for a lot of people. Um, you know, there are games right now like like the, the group games for change just does phenomenal work. Um, yeah. And uh, Aussie Barak, who is the, the president of Games for Change, he, he was one of the guys that started Impact Games. And, um, you know, as to say that going to the Games for Change conference is easily, um, it's one of the best conferences that I've ever been to. It's phenomenal. Yeah. And if you want to see how, people, how games affect people and how they change people's lives, that's the conference to go to. Yeah, I watched, I did a lot of the live streaming stuff this year. Um, yeah. Really interesting stuff. Really interesting. You know, you know what's kind of. You, you, I, I mean, I'll tell you what I find interesting about about that space, um, and and I find the same interest in marketing, which is that the the big tagline, which is like, it's amazing how the games have changed people's lives. If I look at kind of what marketing gets done, which is, you know, gets people, marketing's about a call to action. It isn't about selling an idea. It's about getting people to change their behavior. And I look at those two things and I think, well, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Like, aren't we supposed to be changing people's lives? That's what education's all about. Um, and aren't we supposed to be getting them to behave in a way that we want them to behave, model out behavior in a certain way. And, and we go ahead and we discount all the kind of progress made. Oh shit, my kid just fell out of bed. My um, wife's running. I hear my wife running. We're all good. Wow, that was, I just heard this one. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> we heard it too. Did you? Yeah. But I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not laughing at your kid falling out of I'm bed. not hearing any yelling. We're we're about right. to change to beds. All right. Anyway, body train and stuff. We got to come back to that. Anyway, that's that's good so, stuff. So I just find it so interesting that you know that that there are all these uh, kind of pockets of people doing things that we set out to do, and we are so convinced that the only way people can learn and that the only that we're the only people that can control that sort of thing and yet there's people that are doing it so much more effectively than we do 
uh, and, and it seems like we just don't want to learn from outside there because somehow, you know, we're very special. Um, Ruben, I am like, I've, I've said like, yes, so many times in the chat window now that it's, it looks a little, um, (laughs) odd, but, um, I'm, I'm I'm totally with you on that. Like, I I think that there is so much that we can learn from marketing. And we probably, in fact, just need to bring you back and have a conversation about this at some point. But, um, but yes, I mean, they, they, you know, marketing is all about behavior change, and they know so much. And and by the way, they also know so much about interpreting analytics. Um, Yeah, there's, there's a lot to learn there, I think. In and the, I think the, the cool thing about gaming for me, and again, I'm not, I, I don't ever pretend to be the gaming expert, but the heuristics of a game, which is that the, the game doesn't necessarily have a single set ending, that, that the, the gaming stuff that's cool, and it doesn't have to be algorithmically complex. It can be very simple stuff, but that the game adjusts to the players and provides unique experiences for the players while all bringing that, you know, individuality of experience down the same path. Um, So, I I mean, I think that that's kind of the really interesting aspect to gaming that that we haven't mastered in, in how we imagine... Uh, us delivering content and even yeah. the the educational games that we build yeah are, are kind of silly yeah yeah i mean um not not that chris builds but that yeah um and let's just uh let's just play some hold music because we really have to continue this my my response really needs chris to be here so I was saying that the interesting thing for me about kind of the marketing and gaming aspect was that if you take at the end of the day what it is that they do, which is change behaviors and call people to action and, and offer personalized experiences of all that. So the interesting thing, thing about gaming is that even though there's no set ending, everyone kind of has, and it doesn't have to be a very complex game programmatically or anything like that, and yet people still have their own individual experiences while as a group, everyone's kind of traveling the same path. Uh, and if I look at that, uh, I say, well, that's, you know, it, that's almost a Holy grail of what um, the whole movement to an online forum was supposed to be that we've never gone to. And yet my, my point being is that there's these industries that are doing great things that we refuse to kind of learn from. That was the point I made, I believe. That's kind of, I mean, that leads us to the inevitable discussion about gamification, you know, which oddly, in my mind, has been perverted into a marketing scheme rather than what it was originally intended to, which is to be to add interactive and and engaging game elements to content. You know, uh, the problem is that it's panning out, you know, I would say. Crappy content plus badges equals crappy content with badges. But that's where the the entire movement is gone because it's people don't want to take time to start from the ground up. You know, and when you look at those that are successful with gamification, you know, and I always point I always point to Nike with the fuel band because that is a great example of how gamification can be really successfully implemented. The problem is that most people don't do what Nike did 
And that's to start from the ground and say, okay, how do we successfully implement all these pieces so that this makes sense? No, what people do is say, okay, I've got this content. Oh, wait, I know what I'll do to make it more exciting. I'll add a leaderboard. <laughs> right. And of course, what is it's negative, and your users don't want it because, frankly, gamification will add time to courses. So you'll have something that used to take like 15 minutes for learners, and although they hated it, they didn't just get through it, and now you're forcing them to sit there for an additional 30 because you want them to go through and get them to a leader. And that is the negative impact of what gamification should do. Is gamification should really get those learners to want to compete, want to play, want to engage in the content because there's some element about it that makes it a little bit more interesting than what it was. So, Chris, you're... Um We've talked about gamification um, quite a lot. I can, I can, I can tell that it's kind of, and I'm sure that you know it's totally reasonable. It's it's a very frustrating topic in a sense for a game designer and somebody runs who runs a game design company for a lot of people to just all of a sudden think that they can do the same thing or achieve at least achieve the same effect by, like you said, adding a leaderboard. You know, and that's a I mean, what, what we've seen is this crazy transition with games that people just think that, you know, you can build these huge in-depth games in, in four months and, you know, with no requirements and no front-end analysis and no testing. You just, they're easy to build and it's just insane. You know, it's, it's crazy. But that's what's happening, you know, because it's like these rapid development tools, you know. You can't substitute a rapid development tool for good design. Absolutely not. Can't. Mm -hmm. But that's what that's what people tend to think is happening, you know. And I mean, you, you look at things like, uh, you know, and if anybody does cursory of the game market, you know, you see things like the Unreal Engine and Unity, and it's kind of like, well, hey, you've got these really easy tools. Why can't you just build it? And it's kind of like you guys need to really take a look at what goes into this because it's not like you just buy a tool like Unity and go. You know, there's, there are a ton of other parts, uh, moving pieces that go into this that, that make this successful. And if you can't see that and you expect it to be that easy, then you're just, you're not going to get there, you know? What I, what I really find interesting about the gamification buzz is how people tend to talk about it like it will take any kind of content, any kind of learning objective or whatever, and make people interested in it. Whereas I don't see... Okay, um, I'm going to tell you, I'm not a game designer. Um, I've read I've read stuff about game design. I've read Coster, and I've well, not I mean, not, not only, but this is what I'm what I'm about to say is is based on some stuff from Theory of Fun for Game Design, um, and I'd kind of like you to respond to it. This is kind of how I think about what you achieve through games. Um, I think that what we try to achieve a lot of through training is you guys have seen The Matrix, right? Yes. Okay, so you know how they plug people in and they just 
you know, they're able to learn all of this kind of stuff, like basically ones and zeros are transferring from a computer program to your brain. Um, we try to achieve that kind of thing and have this, you know, data turn into skills on the job. Um, and we think that maybe games are one way to do that because people will be a lot more interested. But I think of the kind of thing you achieve through games more like Inception. Well, which you may have seen or may not, but it's more like you get a nugget, you get an idea, but it's very deeply ingrained. Well, here's one thing about the Matrix that, that I think is, uh, because I've seen that, and, and I hear people talk about that, and it's like, okay, well, we want to plug, the, you know, like the idea that you're plugging something in and pushing ones and zeros. Okay, well, so, so that scene in the Matrix is Trinity, who is in the Matrix and says, you know, hey, I need to know how to fly a, a, a Bell 212 helicopter. And in an instant, now knows how to fly that helicopter. So here's the thing. Trinity is not learning how to fly a helicopter. Her computer construct is being given the data to know how to fly a helicopter. Those are two totally different things, okay? It, it's That's like a point. My in-game World of Warcraft character can learn how to make a leather shield, okay? It's, it's leather working, okay? That's a skill. How do I do it? I go in, I pay, you know, whatever gold to my trainer, and I am awarded that skill. Right. I cannot make a leather shield because I am not that computer construct. And I, you know, I was always disappointed about that in the World of Warcraft. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to do leather crafting, but you know, whatever. The people are disappointed when they realize that I'm actually not just a physical incarnation of my Twitter feed; that I'm digital incarnation of me. But um, you know, I, I think that's something in the Matrix that's often overlooked. You know, people talk about that all the time. Well, we're doing this. No, you're not. That was a computer giving a program. An addition, an extension. It's like giving Firefox a flash plugin. That's that is a really good point. It's happening there. And people don't remember that. Like, they always think, well, this person now knows. No, you know what? Unplug that. Unplug Trinity from the Matrix. Guess what? She can't fly a 212 helicopter because you know what? It doesn't exist in the Matrix. So if we take that, though, and overlook it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we take that whole metaphor that, 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 I mean, most people don't see it. And I didn't really think about that part of it, but, um, but yes, if we, if we take that, you know, this is that transfer of data, transfer of skills, whatever that we're trying to achieve in quote unquote training. And, you know, what do, I, I don't know. Maybe this is maybe this isn't really a, a a real road. But I but my my question remains that is that what you try to achieve through games? Is that it their best use? I, I mean, yes and no. You know, I I go back to. I mean that that's a that's a that's a really tricky question. You know, I, and. Um, I would prefer more time to think about that before I answer, but, I, but I'll say this. Um, you know, the definition of games and what is a game and what isn't a game can be a, a tricky 
a slippery slope, you know, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, I go back to the aviation world and, and flight simulators. Um, you know, a full motion flight simulator to me was always a game. You know, I, I love to fly. It's, it's, it's a passion I've had. And being in that flight simulator to me was like the greatest experience. It was so much fun. And I don't think it's any coincidence that one of the best-selling games of all time, in fact, it was the number one selling game for years, was Microsoft Flight Simulator, which was a game. Um, what's interesting to me is that when we talk about using games in that way, and this is why I'm talking about simulations, um, you know, in the aviation world, there's a task analysis model that teaches you that, that they fall and how to fly an airplane. Uh, and they apply that to the simulator. Um, you could do that with a game, you know. In fact, I think you do in most games. Um, when you when you play games, in fact, I think uh, games like uh, what is that? I, I, I just started playing Borderlands too. And the first thing you do is go through an extensive gameplay based tutorial. This is how you play the game, and it's playing the game. So you're learning how to play the game. I mean, that's why I think games are such interesting learning models because most games are learning tools inherently because the first thing you do is learn how to play the game and the game teaches you how to do that. So, you know, it's possible. I mean, there's a difference between playing Borderlands and um, flying a helicopter, but, you know, I'm sure figure that out. <laughs> well, if, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, if you ever have any more thoughts and want to continue this conversation, come back and we will. So I, wanna... I, I think this is really interesting. Anyway, I want to I, I want to uh, talk about that whole matrix matrix thing for a second. There's there's like two big points that that for me are uh, are well two or three points that are takeaways for me. One is um you know the whole thing what Chris is saying about the computer construct learning it is actually really cool and something that I had never thought of. Um, but one of the things that um, I think, Judy, that even if you even if you pretend that that isn't there, and I'm not sure why you why you would want to pretend that's not there, because in fact, kind of systems. When I talk about, you know, we need to figure out ways of building stuff into the environment uh, as you know that is consistent with this coevolution with technology. And that's kind of the setup that I think, which is that if we access our world through this virtualization of everything, then all I'm really concerned about is making sure that that my virtual presence has access to that data. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and that's kind of something, and, and well, wait till I get to my second point. If I'm the... I've been learning how to fly seaplanes, and uh, my uh, my CTO Rob Christie, who's really into our seaplanes, brought in his uh, controller and the simulator, uh, and I've been learning I've been learning to fly these planes, and he tells me that it is ultra realistic. In other words, exactly what I'm seeing on the screen is if I was in a field, is exactly what would be happening on the field. Except that when I crash the plane in the computer, it doesn't really cost me anything. And so the reason why I would even want to gamify learning that is because that 
the, in the real world, uh, learning that can be very expensive and has all sorts of risks associated with it. If I'm going to, the reason why people gamify stuff is because they think that they gamify it so that the content will be engaging, that adding that gamification element makes the content engaging. If you're working with corporate policies, you know, I have to get, I have to teach you corporate policies. Well, who gives a shit whether or not you're engaged by the content or even if you learn it, isn't it more important that in the virtual world that you operate in, that you have access to that information on demand? In other words, why even gamify it? Why even, why even put yeah. a barrier? Why even, why even train it? Why, why train it? Why, why right. it? Right. And then not even train it, but gamify it where you're adding layers of barriers to get what you might need at the time that you need it. And so the whole analogy of that the computer presence gets the data, um, I think is, is really an important one because in most cases, in, in most of the content that 90% of the people deal with that are dealing with, I need to train people in our corporate policies. I need to train them on our product. I need to train them on, on all these little things that don't have the same risks and costs associated with something like flying a plane where it makes sense to gamify it. You're not necessarily trying to change, uh, change the world. You just, you know, people need access to that data the same way that in the matrix that they, that, that, that was the case. And really what you need to do is you need to bury it in the environment where people operate. In the matrix, that was the world that she operated in, and the data gets embedded in that environment. So, uh, so, so yes, and um, the reason that I want to pretend that it's Trinity rather than Trinity's construct who learns the material, and the reason I think that there is a difference between whether the construct has access to that data or us is that sometimes it's not about having access to the data. It's about a person being able to perform a skill. Yeah. And that's where it, um, yes, we do need a part two to this, <laughs> to this podcast. Um, but that is where it kind of gets different. And I think that that is, I mean, there's probably no better or more um, widely familiar um, example to, to people within training and out outside of training than the one that we're going to take from the aviation industry, Captain Sully, blah, blah, blah. That's what they taught us in training. He was able to make a heroic rescue because it was muscle memory or whatever you want to yeah. call it that, um, you know, that he was, he had the skill. He didn't have time. He didn't even have time to look at a job aid, much less take any learning course. Right. Um, that had to already be part of his skill set. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I, what I want to get to and what, um, that's kind of what I think the difference is and, and, um, what I, <sighs> I, I knew I should have. I knew I should have written down what I was going to say about what you were, what you were going for. But well, we're talking about skills, right? You want to train, right. It, right? If it's about flying a plane, right? We all agree that that you need the level of flight simulators and you need that stuff um, yeah. because because that is probably the best way to acquire muscle memory, the best way to acquire the kind of sensory part of that, the emotional part of that, and all that. And nothing will substitute for the real world, but that's as, mm -hmm. as close as you're going to get it, and that makes sense. 
Um, I, I think I may have even made a dent in to me, the difference between a simulation and a game, because I agree with Chris that it's kind of a very fine line. Um, I think that games can be very good at building that kind of muscle memory. Simulations are as well. Games might have that other component, that inception component that I'm trying to get at. You know what I'm saying about belief, about grokking something? Yeah. You know, there's... um... You know, there's a couple of those those games for change that um, that are pretty cool in, in that way. Um, it'd be interesting, uh, and I know Chris would have the stats on it, but it'd be interesting to see how behaviors change and how those behaviors endure. So, if I play a game that makes me aware of, you know, poverty and what it's like to to be poor and all that stuff. Um, does it does it change my behavior in any way, and how long does that last? And and I and I say that because if I think about when I have um, an argument with my wife, I might change my behavior for two weeks, but you know, six months later, I tend to return back to you know old behaviors, and kind of the argument starts all over. And I think that that's that can be generalized to a lot of things. Uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Um. <laughs> well, no, but, but I say that be, because like if, if you're looking at, um, so in the corporate world, when we're trying to teach skills, so there's kind of a hands-on aspect to some of the jobs that people have and for which we're responsible for teaching them. The fact is, is, is uh, if I'm going to teach you, and, I, and I've built out um, training on, uh, for uh, operators of robotic arms, let's say. Uh, and, uh, I, I obviously can't get at the level where they're controlling the real robotic arm, but in a, in, in a way, my, my job wasn't to get, to give people those skills, but it was to give them enough of a heuristic that when they got in front of the machine, that the learning curve wasn't about where are the controls and what do I do? that the haptics of it is something that I couldn't get at with the technology that I was using. And so I didn't even try, like the goal wasn't that learner will be able to move robotic arm. It's that, you know, when the learner sits down in front of the robotic arm and they look that there's a familiarity to that, that now they can, they can play with the robotic arm at a level that, you know, speeds up their ability to focus on actually controlling the robotic arm. Uh, and, and so I think that there's a spectrum of things there, but you know, when, when people believe that if they're going to gamify our corporate policies, I'm going to turn it into a jeopardy game, that that's going to make corporate policies more engaging. And I just think that that's just a bunch of, of BS like that. Are we, are we agreed on that, Chris? I think Chris went to go take care of his son. Um, no, I, I think we are agreed in it in some cases. I mean, it's it's all a matter of how you present the game uh, and, and what you're trying to do, right? You know, I mean, a Jeopardy game is certainly appealing to some, but um, overall, I, I would question the takeaways. Um, you know, I, I think when you look at, at games that make people 
you know, particularly in the corporate world, um, games that make people interact, that make people talk, that make people think, um, that you build an experience that make them remember or that they can associate with it, with, with something that gives them that memory. I think that's where you start to have a pretty decent impact. Um, I do want to comment on, uh, on uh, on the uh, uh, on Sullenberger and the plane going into the Hudson because I think that please please do that's a very interesting I, I felt I felt a little cheap even bringing that up because it was so exploited. I think you need to feel cheap. Um, it's not muscle memory. Um, the Airbus doesn't really have the Airbus is electronic, so really there's no. It's just kind of influence. Uh, they do have job aids in those airplanes. Actually, um, when incidents occurs in an Airbus, they have three three, four screens called ECAMs. Uh, I believe it's four screens, if memory serves. Um, and the ECAM walks you through exactly what you're supposed to do. Um, I think what was most interesting is that um, you, the airline itself had, um, and this was written up in the, I'm not you know, throwing anybody under the bus, this was actually written up in the report. Um, uh, the airline actually had uh, something called a quick reference handbook, a QRH, Reference handbook was uh, is a spiral bound notebook that is abnormal, as they call them, procedures. So, like engine loss, things like that. Um, what was interesting, and, and that he's that was brought up report, is that uh, as part of the budget cutting measures of the airline, they had removed the actual physical tabs. So it took them a, a bit of precious time to find exactly the procedures they needed to go to, which was interesting. That's actually something that I was going to ask, whether, you know, I, I would assume there was some kind of performance support. I would assume, though, that they don't really have to do much looking for it in an emergency situation. Is that true? Not true? Depends on the aircraft? Um, but they always do have the physical handbook there, or they, they should have. I mean, e electronic flight bags are changing that a little bit. Um, but but you know that a lot of that comes down to his skill as a pilot. I mean, if you listen to the radio transcripts, uh, he was just very cool and he was very focused on doing what he needed to do and, and flying the airplane, which is what a good pilot does. That's why they have two people in the cockpit. They have the uh, you know the pilot flying, which is in charge of flying that airplane. And when you get into an incident like that, you are taught from day one: fly the airplane, fly the airplane first, worry about everything else later. Uh, and in the case of large airliners, you, you have two two people flying the airplanes. So you've got your pilot flying and your pilot not flying. Your pilot not flying is the one that's going through the checklists and, and trying to call out and make call outs and such. So, you know, he did exactly what his training was supposed to do. Um, he, you know, and he, he did comment. I mean, he's also on the record as saying that one of the things that airlines need to do is concentrate on their training more, which I think is an interesting statement. I find I find it very interesting, um, and I think I don't know whether this is something you can comment on in your capacity or not. I I, I know that it's something you could possibly, but I don't know whether you can. Um, that I I find a very different attitude toward training in the airline industry and the military than and and basically any other life and death situation than in corporate America. Well yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the the part of that is well yeah, you know, 
because we're talking about life and death situations. Um, but at the same time, if our goals, if the goals of training are important, then it seems like we could be using a lot of the same techniques or not doing the training at all. Yes. <laughs> That's my... <laughs> Yes. So, so it is getting extremely late here, um, and or well, it's getting extremely late there. Um, we've all agreed to to follow up this conversation at one point. Thank you very much, Chris and Ruben, for being here, um, and we hope uh, that there will be many follow ups in the future. And folks, there you have it. Thanks. Thanks.